Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from the front line, analyse Ukraine's warning that Russia may have placed explosives on the roof of Europe's biggest nuclear power plant, and we discuss the contest to replace Jens Stoltenberg as head of NATO. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 5th of July, one year and 131 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, assistant comment editor Francis Sternley, Telegraph columnist and former tank commander Hamish Bratton gordon and it's our pleasure to welcome to The Telegraph Ukrainian journalist Marco Gontar. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. So there have been Russian strikes across Ukraine yesterday. In total, nine Ukrainian oblasts, nine regions were hit across the country. It did result in deaths and injuries to to civilians. I'm just going to point out one. So an Iskander missile hit the uh, Povomysky, or hit Povomysky. This is a town about 50 k south of Kharkiv. Injured 31 people, including 10 children and babies. Now, I highlight that because the attack happened at 13.35 local time, just after half past one in the afternoon, lunchtime, we could, we could call it. Um, it hit the town centre. Andrei Kostin, who's Ukraine's prosecutor general, said the area had only civilian objects in it. And I just, again, I just question why these people, what is it in them that allows them to fire missiles at lunchtime into a town centre? But hey, I think we know the answer to that. Now, last night, Ukraine hit a Russian ammunition site in Makivka. This is just to the northeast of Donetsk City, just a couple of k's outside the city. There's very dramatic footage. You'll see it on our website. The resulting explosion from this is is very, um, very, very dramatic. As I say, there's uh, the rockets that were there. The ammunition was there. Cooks off, so so it's fired off under its own under its own steam because of the intense blast and heat from the um, from the strike. There's incendiary ammunition raining down on the town. There's no reports of casualties yet from the town, but there undoubtedly will be because the the secondary blasts from the site then you know, covered the town in a in a big old mess. The next one now, the most important one today i think ukraine has warned that russia may have placed explosives on the roof of the zaporizhia nuclear power plant president zelensky said last night moscow 
maybe planning to detonate them and using that as a pretext to blame Ukraine for shelling for the damage. Uh, now, this this idea about explosives being placed at the plant, this has been around for a little while. Recent claims by the Ukrainian army, for example, warned of, in their words, possible preparation of a provocation on the territory of the Zaporizhia plant in the near future. Now, we're told yesterday Mr Zelensky had a, a phone conversation with Emmanuel Macron, president of France, when he warned about, this is Mr Zelensky warning about, quote, occupation troops preparing dangerous provocations. And he said, given the given the, the build-up to this and the idea that Russia is going to move their forces out and various other, other comments around then it's it's looking increasingly concerning. Now, possibly giving these warnings greater credibility, the Kremlin said there's nothing to see here, and they blame Kyiv. They said there's a great threat of sabotage at the plant, and said that uh, Ukraine are planning to uh, to take measures there, to, and they are going to Russia will counter such a threat. This is coming from Dmitry Peskov, Kremlin spokesman. He was speaking to reporters earlier today. He said the situation was tense around the plant and the sabotage threat could be catastrophic in its consequences. The Kyiv regime has repeatedly demonstrated its willingness to do anything. Therefore, all measures are being taken to counter such a threat. Now, he gave no evidence, obviously, never gives any evidence to this to back up his assertion. But in another, you know, another bit, that get another alarm bell ringing for me, Russia's foreign ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakharova, she's on Sputnik Radio, and she said Ukraine is planning to conduct a terrorist attack on the plant with, a, with potential consequences affecting the entire globe. So a lot of focus on it and a lot of denials by Russia, which always gets me worried. Now, separately, second, uh, sorry, secondly, uh, an interesting story in today's Financial Times that says uh, Britain, America and France, so NATO's three nuclear powers, made it very clear to the Kremlin that they would use conventional force if Russia uses a tactical nuclear weapon. And they say, this is the FT, say, in the wake of the warnings, Putin has abandoned his rhetoric and hasn't mentioned the use of tactical nuclear weapons publicly for several months. This comes in the wake of, from the US, you'll remember Senators Graham and Blumenthal bringing forward a draft resolution to say that given the the likely radiation and the, and the injuries to health of people in NATO countries, that they, they, their draft resolution says that any use of tactical nuclear weapons should be viewed in light of an Article 5 breach, as in it's, a, it's an attack on NATO. So, I mean, those senators are not, are not in government, but they are very senior, and, uh, and, and that is a, a, a siren warning. But I think France has got more on that a little bit later. Elsewhere, let's go to southern Russia, so the Belgorod region of southern Russia. There was an attack in the early hours of this morning, or at least a blast in the early hours of this morning, resulted in civilian injuries, according to the uh, Belgorod governor. Uh, He said the strike included grad rockets, and um, he also said Russian air defences shot down three air objects, including a drone. Kiev hasn't commented on that. A couple more. So today's uh, British defence intelligence output was talking about how the recent Wagner coup, mutiny, dash up the M4, whatever you want to call it, has worsened the existing fault lines between Wagner and the and the Russian state, those fault lines that Ukraine pushed to such effect around Bakhmut. So the, the British MOD said, they were talking about, we've not heard from General Sorovkin since that, uh, since the attack, that bizarre sort of hostage video thing. They said that any official sanction against him is likely to be divisive, their words. So we've not seen Sorovkin since the Saturday, June the 24th. There have been unverified reports he was arrested. And defence intelligence say, 
Quote, although largely known in the West by his brutal reputation, Sorovkin is one of the more respected senior officers within the Russian military. Any official sanction against him is likely to be divisive. The suspicion that has... Um, the, sorry, the suspicion that has potentially fallen on senior serving officers highlights how Prigozhin's abortive insurrection has worsened existing fault lines within Russia's national security community. And I note today President Zelensky is quoted in CNN, or an interview with CNN, he says that uh, according to Ukrainian military intelligence, half of Russian uh, half the Russian population uh, support it, or worse, supportive of Prigozhin's view. It um, it does. It, it, they're just pressing again. I think they're right to do so on those existing fault lines. They are clearly, clearly there. I mean, Prigozhin. It, it's a bizarre situation that Russia's allowed itself to get into. Prigozhin, if he says anything now, he gets attention. If he doesn't say anything for days, that gets commented upon. Pretty much the same with Sorovkin. So. He's leading the debate, really, whether he likes it or not. And I'm sure he absolutely loves it. But, uh, yeah, Putin has to find some way of regaining the the uh, the initiative here and the, on the narrative, trying to dominate. He's got to get back on the front foot in terms of the headlines. So I would have thought we'll we'll see Putin out and about doing doing stuff or very worrying in light of the, the news from Zaporizhia and the nuclear power plant. I think Russia might try to do something to divert attention because at the moment it's all Prigozhin, 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 Wagner, Sorovkin, what the hell's going on? So that makes me very nervous about Zaporizhia, just linking those two. Just finally, here in Britain, Chief of the Defence Staff, Admiral Sir Tony Radikin, so the head of the armed forces here, he was in front of the House of Commons Defence Select Committee yesterday. He said a lot of things, but there was a, there was a section on Ukraine, just a quick run through of that. He said that, um, that Ukraine was the biggest issue in his inbox right now. I'm paraphrasing. But he said he was in regular touch with General Zaluzhny and well, his opposite number, obviously, in Ukraine. Also in touch with Mark Milley, chair of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, and also General Chris Cavoli, who's the commander of U.S. forces in Europe, and Sakur, Supreme Allied Commander Europe, the, the head of the military side of, of NATO. So CDS, Chief of Defence Staff, talking to the right people regularly. He was saying Ukraine's policy in this counteroffensive is to, is to starve Russia of, of, of materiel, so equipment and, and supplies, and command and control. So hit headquarters, just deny them the, the stuff, the means of waging war. And he included sabotage operations inside Russia in that. So starve them on the one hand and then stretch them on the other to to, to present multiple challenges to them, to overload their systems. I think they don't know what threats to deal with, first of all. So have multiple axes or attack on multiple axes, probe probe across the entire front, have have faint operations, which is which is designed to draw the enemy out or, or to attack in one area, seeing if they'll deploy reserves and so on and so forth. So to overload the Russian system, basically. Interestingly, he said that the Ukrainian armed forces are yet to reach the first Russian defensive lines. We think that we think they're around the, the town. It's in the Zaporizhia front around the town of Robotine. We've been talking about that for the last couple of days. Admiral Radikin said that Russia had packed the security zone ahead of that. So between that first line of defenses and uh, and the Ukrainian lines now, including with minefields of a density that are probably greater than Ukraine expected, which I thought was a, a fairly telling comment. He highlighted the lack of air cover that's hampering Ukraine's advance and their continued requirement for air defence, artillery, drones and uh, equipment support for all the stuff. But he said, he said, interestingly, the conversation about the timelines is unfair. So a lot of this chat about, oh, the counteroffensive should be, should be going a lot faster or it's all failed because they're, they're not yet in Moscow or whatever. He said, conversation about timelines is unfair. 
And this counteroffensive has always been more than just military. He said it involves economic, diplomatic and military elements. He noted that Ukraine has taken back more terrain in the last few weeks than Russia took in the whole of last year. Or sorry, that Russia has taken in the last year. So just trying to get things in perspective there. And when asked about the chances of, of Russia pushing on, blunting this counteroffensive and then pushing on themselves, he said, quote, Russia is so weak it does not have the strength for a significant counteroffensive. So suggesting that there just isn't the personnel, there are not the personnel and is not the equipment there available for Russia to, um, to, to mount any kind of counteroffensive, even if... Ukraine by their movement by their by their offensive they allow gaps to form he's saying Russia just can't they might be able to do local counteroffensive you know very small scale but they're just not able to knit together anything of any great uh, any great size but yeah so of all, of all that I think the um, I think the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is the, is the most is the most concerning and I'm pretty sure we'll be coming back to that shortly thank you very much Dom Francis there's an awful lot for you to get your teeth into today where would you like to start there is indeed, David. Thank you. Well, I'll turn to Zaporizhia and the China piece in the Financial Times in a moment. But first, I want to discuss Joe Barnes's splash for us, The Telegraph, on the high-level conversations taking place within NATO about who will succeed Jens Stoltenberg long-term. I spoke yesterday about the confirmation that Mr Stoltenberg would indeed extend his contract by another year to October 2024, given that the bloc couldn't agree about who might be best suited to take over. Well, Joe has unveiled, and we're hoping to get him on to speak about this later in the week, that President Biden is pushing for the current head of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, of course, to be installed as the next NATO Secretary General after Ben Wallace's candidacy was blocked. She is now said to be the US's preferred candidate after the White House rejected Britain's Defence Secretary for the role. Now, as I referenced, NATO leaders had hoped to reach a deal on a success to Mr. Stolberg at the annual summit in Vilnius, Lithuania next week, but had failed to agree on a candidate. Now, a NATO source has told Joe that the US president was attempting to convince Miss Ursula von der Leyen to succeed Mr. Stoltenberg amid fears that a suitable candidate won't emerge in the next 12 months. And a second source has told him, quote, we're going to have a problem next year when it becomes clear that the field is no stronger than this year. So Biden and von der Leyen are known to have built quite a strong bond in recent years, fostering close transatlantic ties over China, for instance, Ukraine, of course, too, the climate. She's fluent in French, and that would likely secure the support of Francis Macron. Of course, the pair of them travelled to China recently in the Germans, Olaf Scholz, is also said to be supportive, but for reasons of the fact that she's a former political rival of Olaf Scholz, and it would also likely see her out of the frame to keeping a top EU job. So the concerns around this, however, arise over her poor handling of the German Defence Ministry, which she led between 2013 and 2019. In 2015, for instance, it was reported that German soldiers had to replace heavy machine guns with broomsticks during a NATO exercise to hide their lack of equipment. And I know that's an extreme example, but the full-scale invasion of Ukraine has drawn close attention to the foreign policy mistakes conducted by Angela Merkel's government. The Wall Street Journal indeed published a a piece a few weeks ago 
examining the legacy of Merkel in light of Ukraine, underlining really how successive governments squeezed defence budgets. And it even cited a commander of the German army lamenting that its once mighty military had been hollowed out over that period by to such an extent that it would be almost unable to protect the country in the event of a Russian attack. Now, in private talks, von der Leyen reportedly told Biden that she would not be available to take over any role at NATO until at least next year. But White House strategists see a window opening up to poach her after next year's European elections. She was expected to be a front runner for EU leaders to retain her as the bloc's most senior official in charge of the commission. But there are now doubts whether she'd actually be able to command support from the European Parliament because there are right-wing MEPs who oppose her on green policies. And so they think that that might not be, they might be powerful enough to see her not being the optimal candidate agreed by the majority. So in essence, there are major questions over her candidacy. I sense unease amongst the more hawkish members of the British Parliament who feel that while she may have been very robust on Ukraine since the full-scale invasion, her past mistakes in German defence should rule her out, in their opinion, as well as the fact that she will be considered a softer touch by Moscow for right or wrong. But turning to other news, Don mentioned concerns over Zaporizhia. I'm going to be brief on this because I know Hamish will have thoughts on it. But I just will add that the International Atomic Energy Agency is evidently monitoring things here. Last week, they said they'd seen no evidence of there being mines planted there by Russians and had been rumoured. But as Don mentioned, there are a lot of rumours circulating at the moment about activity at the plant, which is causing concern. And if there's more on this, of course, we will report it. I do recommend people following Raphael Grozzi, the head of the agency, and indeed the Twitter of the International Atomic Agency, because they are updating people fairly regularly on their work there. But as, of course, we've talked about in the past, there is question marks about the what, the, how much they're actually able to access of the plant and whether they have the full support of the West in terms of what they would perhaps like to see done there, as opposed to what is actually capable of being done in terms of the red lines being drawn, etc. Now, onto the subject of China. Don referenced the piece in the FT. In short, it's fascinating and tallies with our own understanding of what the conversations are believed to have took, taken place behind closed doors between China and Russia, or at least what China said took place, tempering Russia by getting Putin to dial down the nuclear rhetoric, for instance. The piece cites one senior Chinese government advisor, as saying that the war threatens to scupper the nation's efforts to drive a wedge between Europe and the US, and a Russian nuclear strike on Ukraine or one of its EU allies would risk turning the whole continent against China. Uh, I mean, I think that's an accurate prediction, to put it mildly, frankly. But interestingly, Zelensky's chief of staff has said that China's position in the face of potential nuclear threat from Russia was indeed important. And so Andre Yermak posted a screenshot of this article in the FT with the caption, this is an important position of China regarding the threat from an insane Russian terrorist. Suffice to say, the Kremlin has dismissed the report. They've described it as a fiction. And that's not impossible, I should say, especially when one sees the kind of support, financial especially, that China has offered Russia since it began. It benefits China for them to be perceived as important by Western powers in, in tempering Russia's instincts. 
whether that's accurate or not. But nonetheless, I do think this is does tally, as I say, with what we understood conversations that were taking place from China and Russia earlier on in the war. Finally, just a quick one on our favourite ongoing saga, the Black Sea Grain Deal. Surprise, surprise, the Russian Foreign Ministry has said that there is no basis for the further extension of the deal, which is due to expire on July 17th. A state news agency has reported that Moscow is, quote, making the necessary efforts so that all participating vessels can successfully complete their mission and leave the Black Sea before the specified date. Now, as regular listeners will know, Russia is constantly threatening to leave the deal, which is considered vital for global food markets, but are yet to follow through with their threats. Might this time be different? Some say it's conceivable, but given that it keeps Russia in dialogue with Western powers and keeps Turkey, who brokered the deal with the UN, relatively on side, then many will argue it benefits them more to remain than to withdraw. Rest assured, I'll be keeping an eye out on it, David. It's, uh, it's gripping stuff. Well, thank you very much, Dom and Francis. Hey, Mr. Bretton Gordon, can I go to you next? We've spoken quite a lot today about ongoing rumours and threats to the Zafrija nuclear power plant. This is a story you've been really keeping a close eye on for months now. What do you see the state of play at the moment and what do you make of what's been said by both sides? Hi, good afternoon, guys. Good afternoon, everybody. Yeah, no, absolutely. I don't want to cover any of the ground that you've already covered. And, you know, a lot of the detail is out there. The first thing I'd say is, you know, that there is a there is a quality and quantity and the amount of rumour and information about Zaporizhia at the moment really makes everybody sit up and is focus. People's eyes are focusing in on it, which which might have an advantage or not for for each side. I just first all look at why there could be an end to Zaporizhia and and then secondly what it could mean. I mean why? Why would the Ukrainians blow up a nuclear power station? Well I'm sure the Russians would say it, it would be to get NATO fully involved and fully committed and therefore would, would allow them to get the Russians out of Ukraine double quick. Yes but uh, looking at the meteorological conditions at the moment and uh, what's been posted about what we call the downwind hazard, where the potential contamination would go, it's pretty much covering all of Ukraine west of Zaporizhia and also then likely to go into Germany and Poland. So, And this contamination, it's a combination, it'll be a combination of uranium, cesium-137. A lot of this stuff hangs around for a long time and would be a hell of a clean-up and basically would affect Ukraine most. So I I don't get what's coming out of the Kremlin that this is um, some sort of event that Ukraine is manufacturing. That, then when you look at why, why would the Russians do it, I think it's unbelievable. I cannot believe anybody would be so desperate, so evil to blow up a nuclear power station. But I thought the same about the Kokovka Dam. And we spoke about that in the weeks running up to it, suggesting that that's something that the Russians might do. But but of course, no, they wouldn't do it. But they did. And I don't think there's any doubt that they did. And and the environmental damage was massive, almost on a scale to the Chernobyl nuclear accident in the 80s. So I, it's part of what I have previously described as the Russians' unconventional warfare. So there is some substance 
behind people thinking that the Russians might actually do it. Why else would they do it? Well, it could well be that this is a likely access that the Russians have identified where the Ukrainian armoured offensive could hammer down into Crimea. Around that area, it might be less well prepared by the by the Russians, thinking that Zaporizhia provides a block. And the only way to prevent that would be to create this, um, this area of contamination. So it sort of all points towards Russia. And what has been said for a long time, stand fast what Senor Grossi said the other day when he hadn't noticed any explosives or mines. It's been talked about for a while. President Zelensky last night said explosives on the roof. Ukraine intelligence was right about the dam. And I think they are they have been consistently quite right. And the fact that everybody else around the world is talking about it. If we look at the actual mechanics of creating what I've described in, in my piece in the paper today, an improvised nuclear device, Actually, I'm not too worried about explosives on the roof. We were talking about the roof. This is the concrete roof, uh, reinforced concrete over the top of the reactors to protect them. If a plane crashes into them, it's not going to damage the reactors. So an explosion is on top of the the uh, roof. I don't think will have much of an impact. Um, also, you know, Russia is suggesting that Ukraine will fire missiles an artillery at the uh, at the reactors to try and create this the, this terrorist event, as they call it. Again, I don't think that will happen. What is a problem is if there are explosives within the, within the reactors, and it will need to be quite a lot of them, or if there are explosives in the cooling ponds where the spent fuel rods are. Now, if there are and there's an explosion, it is not going to create an atomic weapon type result. We are not going to see a massive mushroom cloud, devastation over several kilometres. Um, but what we would likely see is, is contamination from radiation. That will be blasted high in the air, and then, then, then the meteorological conditions will, will move it. There are a few downwind hazards being posted on the, the internet recently. I can't really comment on their veracity, but it generally, as I said at the beginning, is likely to head northwestish. And and w- would be a problem for some time. So, I think in sum, I can't see any reason at all why Ukraine would blow up its own nuclear power station. Russia has a bit of form in this area. They would likely create an advantage. But again, if 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 the UK follows the US, what what I would like, what is missing so far? You mentioned the the US Senate. Of passing, of putting forward a motion that this was be Article Five. In other words, get NATO involved. Yeah, I would like to see, and again, have called for it today for our own Prime Minister to say the same thing. I also think there is a bit of a window of opportunity. It might have closed now, where we've discussed it for for, for months that actually the UN should get out of its ivory tower and um, create a demilitarized zone around these nuclear power stations and other key areas. Yeah, they could have done that for the dam. And if the Russians are moving out today, it strikes me there would have been an opportunity to get people on the ground to create a demilitarized zone, because I'm sure that the Ukrainians would support it. And they've said it in the past. So, again, the UN slightly sitting and watching it, in my opinion, 
and that would uh, that would have prevented it. So again, we're, we're just going to have to see. It's um, you know, I think I think um, President Zelensky said it was tonight that something was going to happen, and in theory, by tonight the Russians will be out. So we we shall wait and see. Thank you very much, Hamish. Just away from Zaf- oh, sorry. Oh, just, please, just, please. Sorry, just one other thing, David. There, I, there is a lot of stuff on, on the internet that people have posted about what to do. We, we've discussed it. I produced this app with the Thompson Foundation, which is on Telegram, which I've tweeted quite a lot. I, it was down in in Kiev yesterday. I got a lot of calls about that. It's now up and running. So anybody listening in Kiev or, or surrounding countries. The, the Thompson app, which tells you how to prepare, what to do, and listen to your local emergency services, is now up and running again. Thank you very much for that, Hamish. And just to all of our listeners, we will include that app in our show notes today, if indeed the worst should happen. Hamish, can I say with you just briefly, I know you've been looking at some of the other news coming out of other, other more sort of hot sections of the front lines regarding chemical weapons. What's, what's your take on what we've heard so far? Yes, but again, very, very, very interesting. I think a lot of us thought that the, the, the chemical issue might arrive a bit earlier. We, we discussed in April last year about about Russians targeting chemical factories, but really didn't have an impact. But yesterday there was a report coming out of a commander in Bakhmut that the Russians were using lewisite, which uh, which was was extraordinary. Lewisite is a vesicant, First World War chemical weapon, basically a blister agent, uh, a bit like mustard mustard agent, aka mustard gas. Again, one is a little bit sceptical about this. It's all about evidence. If there is any evidence produced, then absolutely one would look at it. And if it is, if the Russians are using chemical weapons, that is yet another war crime and should be investigated. I, I hope the UN's agency to investigate this, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, are on the balls of their feet. In theory, because it's happening on Ukraine territory, and Ukraine is a signatory of the Chemical Weapons Convention, as is Russia, Ukraine could request that the APCW come in and investigate. So so it's early days. It, it does link with what I've been talking before about this unconventional warfare and material of modern warfare, where in Syria I saw when, when the Syrian regime and Russians failed to take towns like Bakhmut, and I'm thinking more in Syria of Aleppo and Ghouta and Douma, when everything failed, they went to chemical. And and in that case, the, the Syrian regime used the nerve agent sarin and the choking agent chlorine. So I have to, I've seen no hard and fast evidence. So some of the symptoms seem to sound like lewisite. Lewisite, people, experts like me in this area haven't really, you know, it's, it was used in the First World War a bit, but not much since then. It's a strange chemical to suggest. And until we see some hard and fast evidence, I think we just... A level of scepticism. But again, it is within the sort of the, the doctrine that we saw in Syria being used and developed. Uh, and it's a little bit like why one is worried about Zaporizhia, because, again, it's slightly part of this unconventional warfare doctrine, which the Russians seem to be following. 
Thank you very much, Hamish. Dom, Francis and Hamish will come back to you all later, I think. But it's a pleasure now to welcome Margot Gontar, a Ukrainian journalist. Margot, thank you so much for joining us in person in The Telegraph. Would you just like to introduce yourself and tell us what's brought you to London? Yeah, sure. Hi, thank you for thank you for having me. And uh, so what brought me to London is... Um, uh, London conference, among many other things, which I was kindly invited to by Chatham House. And um, I think what I really, what really struck me, so we, we you know, we, we've talked about like, what was my impressions of all of it. And uh, what really struck me, because I've been going to all these conferences for like number of years, and my first one was nine years ago, and the, the difference I've seen in rhetoric towards Russia. So this is, as for Ukrainian, this is really reassuring to see that there is no uh, more, how to say, doubt in the fact that Russia is an aggressor and that it should be dealt accordingly and that... Even those who brought up the any kind of negotiations, any 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 talks, they also were forced. I believe this is the right word here. Were forced under the times to anyway mention that the land of Ukraine should be returned and the that the deal should be done, even if done on Ukraine's terms as much as as much as is possible. So this is definitely a great change, I mean, from the beginning of the war, which started in 2014. And this is really reassuring to see this unity, I would say, in many, many allies Ukraine has. That's actually that's actually really, really interesting. We, we've spoken today quite a lot about uh, Zafirisha nuclear power plant. You've heard updates from all of our journalists on that. Could I ask you, what's your reaction to what we've heard? And um, do you have a sense of how ordinary Ukrainians and you know, your friends and family back home are reacting to some of the news coming out coming out of Zafirisha? I would I would say well first of all it definitely is a great news to to hear the reaction to our, of our allies and the you know the I would say the stand the countries are taking like US and and, and many others so so this is Ukrainians mainly want to see this commitment because of how devastating this situation can develop but also, as for the reactions of Ukrainians, I would say it's quite... So we obviously rely on support of our allies and we do definitely uh, hope for it to continue. But also because because of everything happening for so long and obviously because of Russia terrorizing a civilian population, and I would say there is a certain fear that when... When if if that happens, we might not see the support that we might want to see, if it makes sense. So even though all these great words are here now, but we unfortunately, like people in Ukraine, unfortunately, seen in some cases less reactions that we would love to see. And it also comes to Ikahovka Dam in a bit. So when it just happened, I remember how I know it, like we've seen some investigation happening, like and and Western media needed time to, you know, to report on this in a way, possibly working for their newsrooms and everything. But I do believe this. I remember these first days when people in Ukraine, many felt left out and just 
forgotten in a way. So and and then the reports start coming in, coming up, and they were they were all like like if Kahovkadam exploded itself, like it's just a natural disaster. It took days before the position started to be shaping as Russia did it, even though Ukraine provided all the you know information that was enough to make some some conclusion that it's Russia who's behind it, precisely because Russia controlled it, this territory for quite a long time and could easily mine it. And we see this same type of possible situation, develop, like not, not developing, but I mean, like kind of building up possibly with the Parisian nuclear station. And I think it's safe to say that there is a certain fear that while the West is still... I'm, I'm I'm using the word West loosely, but while people discuss whether it will happen or not, Ukrainians are actually preparing what to do when it will happen, and maybe the West will not react in the way that we we envision it 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 to be support enough. And when I say that, I mean maybe not react in the strong measures enough for for Russia not to create another devastating uh, situation because. The Kohovka Dam was bad enough, but now we're discussing the Parisian nuclear station. So obviously, the reaction to Kohovka Dam was not enough for Russia not to even not to even think about that. So I, w- I would say this is like uh, the the general feeling. So it's mixed, but also in the same time, I wouldn't say it's devastated type of mood. So I would say the resilience is still there, and that's that's just how it works. So on the one hand, you might be frustrated by the reaction of the West. But in the same time, people are preparing, you know, for for the worst. And I think, yeah, I think that's what it's about. War showed out that the worst can always come. So that's that's type of the mood, I would say. Can we move away a little bit from the news and talk about social media? You're a big presence on Twitter. And Twitter is, you know, as live listeners now and listeners later to the podcast will know this is how we primarily record what we do and then broadcast it every day. We've reported through the last year and a half on the changing ownership of Twitter, the impact that's had on social media. What's it felt like for you as a Ukrainian on on Twitter and how how has the change in ownership, the change in strategy and everything that's come with it affected how you work and what, what have you seen change in the past year? Yeah, thank you. This is this is a great question. I think that showcases in a way what is happening with journalism overall and how it you know changes how it changes let, let's put it this way so with the with the full scale invasion starting so many events started to evolve in the same time so basically the the media using say the the how and say traditional means but i mean like the websites or the channels even they were too slow so basically what ukrainian media started using and by media i use it loosely so the ukrainian telegram channels just individual journalists they tried they started using telegram which is basically like like WhatsApp type of messenger. I'm saying that for listeners that might not be familiar with it. So, which allows you for more speed to to get information to your readers. And and I think in this way, the the not the attitude, but the kind of the expectation of the information kind of shifted a bit. So so it we kind of used to the fact that it might come you know earlier but maybe not exactly fully verified and then it will come a bit later with more verified data so so i think that the kind of expectation that everything will be fully checked kind of shifted a bit but also the 
Ukrainian media also relied heavily on Telegram before, but the, the, I would on social media, let's put it loosely, but just Telegram is heavily used. But during the full-scale invasion and, and up until now, especially since many monitoring channels, which monitor the air raid sirens, the the explosions, they all use Telegram to to get to their, you know, to to get to the people, so people know what's happening. And this is basically became a very essential part on how people actually get to know what's happening because the websites while they check and everything and do a piece it might really take a long time and in the same time i've seen how twitter like speaking you know about the ukrainians writing for the foreign audience as myself also it's it's, um I've seen that for Western audience, Twitter kind of play the same role, I think, that Telegram plays for Ukrainian audience in Ukraine. So that this is also one of the ways how you quickly can get information of what's happening. And I had tons of times readers come to me and they say, we haven't seen this story or that story in our like local media, like our national media. And I do understand why, because it just social media like Twitter or Telegram, they allow for speed. That is so essential right now when you have tons of things happening at the same time. While when you want to put out the piece, um, say, on the website as as a big media, you need so much more time and, and people involved for it to happen. So I'd say that the war just showcase how much social media provide the this you know the this tool necessary for people to get information right away even if it's it still needs to verify and so it still can come as updates but in the same time i would mention here uh, you know regarding what we've seen on the weekends with the twitter being down and broken and all this weird things happening uh, that Elon named as, you know, as, as limiting of the tweets uh, because of the scrapping. So all that thing. So and I kind of think the same thing about the telegram right now. So right now, Ukraine relies so much, actually, Ukrainian media and individual journalists so much rely on telegram. And at the same time, Western journalists even more rely on Twitter. And by that, I mean also many, many activists and journalists from very different countries who use it for protests as well as, you know, archiving, that we do not even fully understand what will happen if, if both this system will go down. And basically, will people will not get the instrument to get the identification about air raid sirens, that's speaking about the telegram, or people in the West or even in African countries or even Middle East will not be able to use it as a source for protests. So I think... In a way, what 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 this weekend made me think, and your question, and the whole happening that, while it's been really a vital tool, we have no substitute for if everything anything will happen to them. That's really fascinating. Thank you so much, Margot, for your answer. Just quickly as well, can I ask, from your perspective, how do you think journalism within Ukraine has changed during the last year and a half during the uh, year and a half of the of the full scale invasion? What have you seen any interesting trends or? Uh, occurrences that you think are important to bring up and mention to to our audience who who won't necessarily especially if they're non-ukrainian speakers won't necessarily be in that world this is this is a great question and i think i'm a bit startled with questions like that in a way uh, that when you're in that you might not see the changes as as good as you know as someone from outside say say foreigner for that matter might see but I would definitely see and and to me it's maybe a bit of the a bit of the global trend that I, I'm seeing this 
kind of shift maybe to people relying a bit more. So so we've seen this trend for a while now, but like this also showcased the trend to maybe sometimes rely more on individuals rather than on media perspectives. Um, so, and I think it's also, it's a, it's also a bit true for Ukraine as well. So we we do still see support for big media, say the, the, those that appeared uh, with a full scale invasion, as well as those had, that had been them for a while. But um, I do feel that we see this continued support for individual journalists and activists more. And uh, again, the one I've mentioned, so this shift to... The shift to usage of social media, in especially Telegram, which allows for, for great speed, I would say this is really important because it's been happening again for a while. But I do I do believe that. So the, the very fact that people can just live, say, in Telegram, just have a Telegram channel and be considered a journalist and not even have, say, a website, this is something that happened for me, for me, at least during this year, and this is because the speed that people need their news at is not like the website is not capable to provide their speed most often than not, and so that's why some moved just to social media like Telegram with providing the stories. And yeah, I think that would be for me the major shift because I think before that people looked at it as more like a great addition of substitute. But now we just understand that this is, yeah, so social media provide the speed that other tools cannot. Just one more question from me, because I know we have to finish quite soon. Unfortunately, of course, every Ukrainian we speak to will have friends and family affected and involved in the war. What's, would, would, you, would you talk just a little bit about how your, your life and the people that you know have been impacted? Well, how much time do you have? <laughs> but I know this kind of... Okay, I know I need to answer brief, but there are so many ways to answer this question. But I think I will try to mention a few points. So first of all, you have you have life being divided to before and after. And that the other thing is... I had this interview with the Asahi Shinbun Japanese newspaper, and I liked it the, the way, like, kind of it came out. And that, well, at least for me, it's you have war that kind of lives in you when, when it start when, when you when you have your first war, it just kind of never ends, and you have this alien like living inside of you, and and just there, you might not feel it. You might feel it with people who never felt war. You might be okay with it. You might maybe use it like for additional aggression in your life but it just yeah i think that's that's that, that's first that happens to you other things that you losing your home you're losing your friends you your facebook becoming a graveyard <laughs> you're like everybody you know lost someone like and going further like you may be losing your loved ones maybe they come back with PTSD maybe they come back with uh, lost limbs that's all you know the next stages but the the, the given is that you have this alien uh, living inside of you but in the same time hellish as it is there is this weird good thing that came up and I, I would I think I think it would be fair to say not just for me so I've, I've heard it from many so even though 
you're you're constantly kind of burned out and tired and well it very depends on your situation so you might feel a bit better on the front line sometimes because you have the 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 chance to actually release the aggression uh it might be worse but in the same time you when the war started for me it was so much shift in understanding the value of life and like the value of moments and so in a way it gives you the 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 rare good things it brings is that you really are careful about connections you have people you spend your time at like and things you do with your life while you still have it and the thing that sound dramatic in and peaceful life as we call it like they they have this value real value uh when you're at war so uh, yeah i think that'll be it Ukraine the latest is an original podcast from the Telegraph to stay on top of all of our Ukraine news analysis and dispatches from the ground subscribe to the Telegraph you can get your first 3 months for just 1 pound at www.telegraph.co.uk/ukrainethelatest or sign up to dispatches our Ukraine newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox we also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. If you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app and If you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod@telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine the latest was produced by Rachel Porter and Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.